Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today we will be speaking with Ms. Carrie Nasembeni, RN, MHA, from the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. Ms. Nazembeni is the Assistant Administrator of Critical Care at University of Washington. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Well, so I know that you're presenting two abstracts at the current SCCM meeting, Mm -hmm. but even more exciting is that uh, your group, University of Washington, has been awarded this year's Family Center Care Award by the SCCM. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yes, we're very proud of our work. That's that's great, and I think that definitely illustrates the importance of multidisciplinary approach that the SCCM also advocates. Tell me more about your projects and why that stood out to the SCCM. So I think that stood out because it it was um, a multidisciplinary approach. It was um, the project that we wrote about was about our patient ICU patient and family advisory council which is a group comprised of patient and family advisors. There's about 10 or 12 of them. And then there's also staff nurses, nurse managers, nurse leaders. Our ICU medical director sits on that committee, social workers. And then that group really has been, over the years, able to advocate and affect a lot of change. For instance, we went from closed, locked units to open visitation. They've been able to advocate for structural changes to our ICU, so waiting room models, the addition of a family conference room, addition of sleeper chairs in every room. So they've been really instrumental in bringing about change in the ICUs and really changing that culture from one that kept families out and in the waiting room to one that now embraces families at the bedside and really sees the patient being at the center of the care. So it's a fantastic group to work with and I just really love hearing their voice and working with them as they help us change that culture. Sounds great. How did this project come about? Um, So we're fortunate at the UW to have, as part of our mission, patient and family-centered care. Um, And we're also really fortunate to have a structure around patient and family-centered care. So I would say about 15 years ago, we started our first council. And I believe that either started in the rehab area or the NICU. And so, gosh, I think it was six or seven years ago, I myself and our medical director then started talking about this. And and hearing a little bit about the councils in the NICU and in the rehab area and thinking that this would be you know, something we should embark on in the ICU, that we really needed to change that culture. And so went to the UW and said, the administration said we wanted to try this in the ICU, and they were very supportive, um, provided us some FTE support, which I think is really essential um, to have that leadership support and that help there. And so we just started, we went back to our staff and our providers and said, do you know patients and families who would be a good fit for this? and got a lot of nominations from a variety of um, different people and across our ICUs, and so reached out to those patients and families. And I would say, you know, a lot of them are interested. Not all of them are able. I think like a lot of medical centers, our, our patients come from all over, and so, you know, folks who live outside the city, it didn't fit so well for, or maybe lived up in Alaska. We have a, a big patient population from Alaska. Um, though we've tried Skype to some degree to bring those folks in. And then after that period of development, that took us about six months, I think, to really develop that council, decide who the staff would be, who the physicians would be, who the social workers would be, interview those patients and families. We had our first meeting, and then we've met monthly ever since. And the chair or the um, committee is co-chaired by a patient or family advisor and then a staff person, and that's been a number of different people over the past six years. 
And then, you know, each year we usually try to take on a big project. And then we also advise the medical center on a number of different projects. So the council really operates on a number of different levels. And and sometimes it's myself and the medical director. We bring issues forward and and, or sometimes they come out of our patient satisfaction results. Or sometimes the council themselves, the patients there say, this is is important to us and we want to see this change. And so on a number of different levels have been able to, to affect change, I think. I was thinking as you were talking about this process of starting something that at the time was probably pretty revolutionary, trying to bring uh, family presence using former patients as advocates and counsels. How was your experience in terms of getting buy-in from the health provider team? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I think... um I think particularly as we started talking about open visitation and the council really pushing for that, there was a lot of pushback on the part of a lot of different people, be that nurses, physicians, you know, concerns brought forward about we would just have people wandering through the ICU, there wouldn't be control. And we even had a, we trialed it and, you know, went back to having the door closed and people calling in because there was just such pushback on parts of everybody, just really feeling like it wasn't safe. Just, you know, I think the typical concerns that you hear about with open visitation. And so I went back to the drawing board, and about a year or two later, we were remodeling our waiting rooms, and we changed our doors into the ICUs from solid wood to clear glass and took that opportunity to say, let's just not put the phone back up. It had been a while we'd been talking about this, you know, really introducing the idea. And so when we finished that waiting room model, we just didn't put the phone back up and didn't necessarily make a big deal about it, and it went over so much smoother. And I think, you know, sometimes you just need to try things, and sometimes they fail, and that's okay, but keep that conversation going. And I think that was really the important part is that we kept that conversation going, kept reintroducing that idea, talking about it in a number of venues, whether that was within the nursing groups, whether that was in our multidisciplinary steering or in the council. And so I think on our second foray into this, it was just like, oh, okay, this is how things are now. And, you know, we've had some bumps in the road, and it doesn't mean that, by no means does open presentation mean that families can do whatever they want. And, you know, as we have families that present issues, we we deal with that real time. But it's, you know, 99.9% of our families are normal people who just want to see their loved one. And, you know, understand if that curtain's closed, that it's not a good time to visit. And I think that that staff having that experience of it working okay has really reaffirmed that change and made that just part of what we do now normally. So, Sounds good. All change is difficult, so yes. <laughs> I, can, I, I, can, I can imagine that it did take some uh, time, but it sounds like eventually it did work out. Mm-hmm. What about the paradigm shift to to really include more of the patient advocates in conversations, to have them actually being the agents of change within the ICU. Did that take any buy-in, or were, pe- were people pretty ready to accept that idea? You know, um, I think that that has been something that's evolved over the years. And I think as the council first started and they brought ideas forward, there wasn't that trust there. But as we had success with projects, that developed And I think a good example of a project that we had a lot of success with was the council wanted to create an ICU liaison program. And so the idea would be that former patients and families would come into the unit and volunteer. And so we started with just two uh, volunteers, two or three volunteers, and piloted this program. There were three former family members, actually, and we knew that they were you know, just salt-of-the-earth type people that could communicate well. 
that didn't have an agenda, train them really well, and then introduce them into the unit and spend a lot of time precepting them and orienting them to the unit. And then what they did was come in once a week during the evening and they would check in with patients and families. And I think because they'd had that experience as a family member, all three of them had been on the unit long term as family members. They were able to connect with our families and provide that emotional support, mentor that level of emotional support for our families, and really bridge that gap for our staff. I think it's very distressing for our staff when they want to be there present present for patients and families and aren't able to, either because that patient's really sick or because they're just very busy that day. And so I think that that program helped our staff say, wow, this is a group that really wants to help and that they have the same interests that we do, that they really you know, want to make sure that that experience of care is is ideal for that patient and family, and they're they're here to help and not make our life more difficult. And so I think that that was one of the turning points. It also allowed our staff to really get to know some of our advisors. Many of our advisors are also liaisons, and so they got to know them personally. And anytime you get to know somebody personally, it sort of brings that all down a level, and people are, you can no longer say, oh, that person, you know, you, you get to know them. And so I think that that really helped move that work forward as well, that personal relationship and understanding sure. people's motivations and where they're coming from. and Sure. How have you been able to quantify the success of these projects? You know, that's, I think, a challenge for all of this work. The HCAPS data, I think, as most people know, is based on discharge, and we really don't discharge a lot of people from the ICU, so our N every month is small. It's across all of our ICU data is grouped together, and so that's another problem. We can't separate it out by ICU because the N is so small, and so you know maybe we have six surveys a month, and so some variability there. Though I think you can look at trends, and you know when we first started this work, we were consistently, I think, below the 20th percentile in overall patient satisfaction mm-hmm. and below the 10th in nurse communication. And so we've seen that rise, and now we're more consistently above the 80th percentile in all of those areas, and so... While the N is still small, and I think most people would look at it and go, you know, what does that mean? When you're consistently bad, there's a signal there, right? And then as you get better, I think that there's another signal there. The one thing, though, that I think both myself and the medical director for our ICU, Dr. Trish Critic, we both felt like we wanted more robust data. And so we worked with the council to develop a survey that we put on a computer in the waiting room. So in all of our waiting rooms in the ICU, we have a computer for families to use. And so there was a, when you opened up the browser, whether that was Safari or Chrome, it immediately took you to a web-based survey uh, oh. that a family member could fill out. And while that those data are sometimes difficult to always trend, it does provide us information. And so one thing that we learned from that survey was that nobody knew who the name of the doctor in charge of their loved one's care was. It was just, sometimes it was a surgeon who had done surgery, sometimes it was maybe a doctor in the outpatient area. Sometimes it was a name we didn't even recognize. We just we simply asked the question, who is the doctor in charge of your care? And while we couldn't, because we, it's anonymous, we couldn't necessarily correlate to know if they did put down an intensivist name, whether that was right or wrong, we did know we had a problem. And so worked with a council to think through this and say, how can we address this? And developed oversized business cards that are about the size of a half sheet of paper, and they have a color photo of the attending on it, and then... Um, the attending's name, their contact information, and on the back, a place to write the rest of the team number or team members' names and their contact information. And those have, I think, really helped. We've also put up professional face boards in each of our units that have the pictures of all the nurses, the leadership for the units, 
both the physician leadership, the nursing leadership, and then the pictures of the attendings. And, and so I think that, that those have helped actually everybody, right? I mean, the staff, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists. And so, so we use that survey really to help us discern whether, you know, where those issues are and if we're making progress. We've, another example is we've done a lot of work on quiet, making a quiet ICU. Um, we knew from our HCAPS data that we were really below the 10th percentile and had a problem actually across the hospital. We wanted to do some targeted work in the ICU and so developed quiet times both in the afternoon and then a quiet time in the evening. Really did a lot of education with our staff, also with our families, with our patients. And we asked a question in that survey, you know, how would you rate the ICU from noisy to very quiet? And we saw the number of responses over time go from less than 10% of people said very quiet to now we're routinely above 60%. So it's not perfect, but making progress. And so use that survey just to give us a signal and to direct our work. And now we're going to go back to the table with our council and say, okay, what are those questions we want to ask now? What, you know, what are the areas we want to focus on? So use that to, to explore issues with our families. Sure. And we're, um, we're also trying to figure out a way maybe to bring that through an iPad app that we can share with families and have in the room. So really trying to look how see how we can do more with that. Mm-hmm. In these times of, you know, cost efficiency being emphasized so much, I'm sure that your administration is very aware of how much benefit this has brought to, mm-hmm. to your center. They, it probably wouldn't have continued if it weren't providing benefit. Yes, yeah. Have I would you, agree. Have you had conversations with the administration about this? How have they analyzed the, you know, the benefits of this program to to the ICU and the hospital overall? Yeah, you know, I think it's a really good question and a very pertinent one given the changing financial times. Um, we do have conversations about, it, and I think that the, particularly when you, you think about the reimbursements being based on patient satisfaction scores, so that's one place where yes. we've looked at it. And while we may not have the best data for the ICU, certainly a lot of the patients that touch the ICU then go on to an acute care area and discharge from there. And so their experience in the ICU, at the end of the day, does impact um, the scores in the acute care area as well. And so that's one area. I think the other thing that we think about is is that, you know, as we think about burnout and staff leaving the ICUs, I think that the more that we can really make that interaction with patients and families a meaningful one, the less likely we're going to see burnout. And so, you know, I've been exploring that as well as how do we, you know, embrace compassionate care and, you know, staff and providers supporting our patients and families, which is something I think that all of us wanted, came into medicine or nursing to do. And so helping, you know, really thinking about how can we help our staff do that has been the other area that we've been thinking about is, um, and so I think that I think I'm lucky to work in an institution that really embraces this and supports it and sees the value in it. I'm not sure that's always the case, but definitely feel very lucky that the UW sees the value and and you know provides that level of support, whether it's at the executive level saying that you know continue to move forward, or whether that through FTE support. So very fortunate that UW to have that. That sounds great. You were mentioning just now about burnout, about compassionate care. And I wanted to ask you more about this. The, uh, this Patient Family Advisory Council mm-hmm. with the ICU liaisons that provide a lot of emotional support for the patients and their family members, how has that program impacted the emotional well-being of the staff? 
And do you think that that program has also, over time, changed the way the ICU team interacts with the patient and their families? Definitely. I think, so prior to the position I'm in now, I I was the nurse manager. And I think on a day-to-day basis, I heard from staff that, you know, as we asked them to do more from the staff nurses, that they weren't able to do the things they wanted to do. That because they were so busy with their assignment, they weren't able to provide that level of support. And so I think one thing, two things the liaisons have done is one, you know, when they come on shift, I see our staff reach out to them and say, hey, can you check in with this family member? Or can you come and sit and talk to this person? And so it alleviates some of that distress of not being able to provide that. I think the other really important thing that the liaisons have done is they've role modeled how to provide that support. So sometimes I, our staff maybe want to provide their, that support or be there for that patient, but maybe don't know how. So embracing silence, I think, is a really challenging concept for a lot of us. I know for myself that I struggle with that sometimes and want to fill that gap or that void, and so our liaisons have you know, showed how just to be present with somebody and to, to reach out to them and maybe not always have to fill that silence or that void. They work closely with our palliative care team, particularly with our palliative care social worker, and so receive a ongoing training and education from that team on how and our as well as our spiritual care providers and really how to be present and supportive for families and so that trickles down to our nurses and I think that they feel more empowered than to be present for patients and families and realize that sometimes you don't need a lot of time you just maybe need a moment and then I think the other thing that the liaisons do that's very powerful is that often families will tell them things that they might not tell somebody else and so they feel connected to a former patient or family and they that current family may say you know what I just don't understand what's going on and they may not have had the courage to say that to anybody else along the line. And so our liaisons know our teams, and we'll go find our doctors and say, hey, you know, I think you should sit down and, and talk to that family. And, and so I think just by doing that, it gives us that earlier signal or warning from families that something's going on there and able to head off problems before they actually happen. And I think we've all experienced families that you just you think everything's going well, and then you turn around, they're like, they just lose it, and you're like, whoa, what happened there? And so... I think the liaisons are really good at preventing that, and not always. I mean, you know, no one's perfect, but they certainly help bring that message forward in a way that maybe we weren't able to recognize or see before. Do you have any advice for other programs that would like to duplicate your efforts? Yeah, I think a couple things. One is is that you really need the support, I think, of the leadership of your institution. I think that's tremendously important. I think you need the buy-in from your your medical leadership. I think our medical director has been extremely supportive of this effort, and without her support, I don't think it would be where we are now. And then I think finally you just really need to challenge yourself to hear that voice of the patient and family. It can be sometimes you what they have to say is hard to hear, and you may think that you're doing a good job, and then you hear from them that you're not. I know recently they brought forward to me some an experience with several of our staff and and some concerns from patients and families. And, you know, you first hear those things, and, and you have to really fight that tendency to, to get defensive. And and so I think you just have to challenge yourself almost on a daily basis to being open to hear that feedback and not get defensive and say, okay, so what now? What? And, and no, you know, it's also a piece of the picture, right? I mean, there's other, there's other information out there that you have to go and get, but... I think that those three things are crucial is that multidisciplinary buy-in, the support from above, and then the willingness to hear that voice and that, and that story or that information that they have to share.
Good advice. Thank you very much for that. My last question for you is: What are your future plans and goals for this project? So a couple things. Um, one is we're in the process of opening up two new ICUs, which is very exciting and somewhat daunting. <laughs> but I'm really working with the council to make sure that those spaces are patient and family friendly. So not you know trying to marry that need also with the need of providers to be able to provide that care particularly in this technically challenging and evolving world. And so they've been great in advising the design and construction team, and so working with them to do that, and then also to make sure that as we open those units that the same level of care continues and the same, that same culture continues. Because I think anytime there's a change, you risk losing elements of your culture that you want to see move forward. And so being very deliberate as we think about those new units, what that culture will look like, and how do we keep the elements that we like and maybe also lose some things that we don't. So there's that. And then we're really working right now on family presence and codes. So we, for a long time, have had um, a, an informal process where we've had families at the bedside during codes, and for the most part, that's worked out well. Though I think the thing that we've heard from families is that there hasn't been always that deliberate and purposeful level of support. It's been somebody, you know, a nurse maybe grabs that family and says, come and be at the bedside. And so developing a very specific and deliberate role, just like everybody else in the code team has, whether that's the code team leader or the nurse who's the running the defibrillator. Now we have a, um, a social worker who's on call and comes in and provides that support for the family. And so putting together a training program for our social work staff which has been interesting as we've gone to the literature, haven't found really anything out there about how to train people to be present and provide support for families and how do you screen families to know that they're appropriate. Um, and so that's, and our patient and family advisors have been really integral to that, both informing what that, you know, what that training should look like, how to be present for families. So really exciting work, and we're, um, I think our first training session actually is in a couple of weeks, so really looking forward to, to rolling that out. Sounds like you'll continue to blaze a trail for the rest of us, so <laughs> thank you for that. Well, this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast crew, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, 
or ideas, please email icriticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.